0: Learning for Life at Gustavus is produced by J.J. Aiken and Matthew Dobosensky of the Gustavus Office of Marketing, Will Clark, Senior Communication Studies major and videographer at Gustavus, who also provides technical expertise to the podcast, and me, your host, Greg Castor. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Gustavus Adolphus College. For many people, Minnesota is synonymous with Scandinavian American, which is to say whiteness. Yet African Americans have a long, important, and rich history in this state. No one knows this history better than my guest today, educator, historian, and author, William Bill Green. Bill, I am proud to say, graduated Gustavus in 1972 with a degree in history. He then went on to earn a PhD in education and later a JD from the University of Minnesota. A professor of history at Augsburg here in Minneapolis since 1991, Bill is the author of three essential books on the history of Black Minnesotans and their struggle for civil rights: *A Peculiar Imbalance*, *The Fall and Rise of Racial Equality in Minnesota, 1837 to 1869*, *Degrees of Freedom: The Origins of Civil Rights in Minnesota, 1865 to 1912*, and most recently *The Children of Lincoln: White Paternalism and the Limits of Black Opportunity in Minnesota, 1860 to 1876*. The last two garnered Bill the Hogman Minnesota History Award. In 2016 and 2020. And Bill has yet another book forthcoming this coming January on the African American uh, woman activist Nellie Francis. In addition to his teaching and scholarly writing, Bill has long been extensively involved in the community around issues of education, especially. Serving, for example, on the Minneapolis School Board, which he chaired, and as superintendent of Minneapolis Public Schools. Gustavus has recognized Bill's outstanding professional achievement with a distinguished alumni citation. Indeed, he embodies what learning for life at Gustavus is all about, and especially in light of recent events in Minneapolis, I've been looking forward to speaking with him about his path to Gustavus and the History of Black Minnesotans. Welcome, Bill. It's great to have you on the podcast.
1: Thank you very much for
0: having me. My pleasure. Let's start with you and your story. Um, Where did you grow up and how did you find your way uh, to Gustavus and the, and the history major?
1: Well, um, I, uh, though I was born in Massachusetts, I grew up in the South uh if uh, for maybe throughout the 1950s we were at uh, in nashville uh, my dad was dean at fisk university oh wow yeah and we we left nashville uh just as the sit-ins were heating up some of those students were my father's students and so there's a kind of a personal connection there and i didn't really understand what they were doing until i began to teach the subject matter which is interesting uh, then we moved to, to New Orleans, which is where I, I, I consider home. That's my mother's home, basically. And, um, from there, I came to to Minnesota. Um, my folks would ask all the time, uh, you know, where do you want to go to school? Where do you want to go to college? And um, of course, I didn't really think much about it when I was in high school. I had my thoughts elsewhere. but. Um, to get them off my case. I said, Well, I think I want to study abroad. I thought that would impress <laughs> them, and so they said, Okay, and they sent me to Minnesota. So that's <laughs> Minnesota, um, and um, you know, I ended up with Gustavus uh, St. Peter and uh, found it to be uh, serendipitous because I really I, I found myself really enjoying uh, the experience. I learned a lot about myself at the
0: college. Did your parents know? Did they know specifically about Gustavus or or did you do some research on Minnesota schools and decide Gustavus was it?
1: Well, neither, actually. Um, um, I my 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 father was uh, a fairly prominent person in uh, black New Orleans uh, in the uh, the political community, and social community. Both of my parents were very much engaged. My mother was a school teacher, and she was very much involved with the uh, work of the League of Women Voters. In the mid to late 60s, uh, President Carlson of Gustavus. Right, Edgar Carlson, yeah. Right, had decided he wanted to, uh, to, to bring a little bit of the real world to the campus. Uh, he, he thought that the students at Gustavus were sheltered, and, and they were, for all intents and purposes, you know, housed as they were, 90 miles southwest of the Twin Cities. And so he sent his, his lieutenants all over the South and Chicago and to New York to try to enlist African-American students to come to Minnesota. And in one such trip, uh, they, you know, they 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 knew that dad was one of the people they should contact when they came to New Orleans, at least. And my dad was impressed. We hadn't thought of Gustavus up to that point. And I think for a long time, he, he, uh, thought that it was a Catholic school and, you know, he was a kind of <laughs> minister. So there there were some issues there, but, um, he, he, uh, was very impressed with, uh, the people he met who represented the college and, um, he also thought it would be a safe place for me to go. I was a young man and kind of frisky and, um, you know, how to get in trouble in St. Peter. Right. Right. So one thing led to another. But they didn't know much about Gustavus until until uh, maybe the summer before. I don't
0: know. That uh, that initiative by by Edgar Carlson is really quite interesting. I think there's a, there's an article about it that i read by a historian and also um, you know, I want to interview, I haven't yet, but for the podcast, interview people like Bruce Gray and yes. Owen Samuelson, who I don't know if they were the ones your dad met, but they Absolutely. were certainly two of the people. Yeah, two of the people doing, let's call it recruiting, uh, traveling around the the South, um, two white guys and, and, and speaking with African-American educators and prospective students. Well, That's remember, really interesting.
1: I remember Bruce to be uh, an amazing contact. I mean, he and my father hit it off. Uh, immediately and for the next four years of uh, my time at Gustavus Bruce was always that person who I could connect with if if you know issue, issues arose and and they did on occasion but uh, he was he was very good I thought in um, you know providing some sort of stewardship for uh, both the college and for the African-american students who were coming through
0: yeah, I heard a lot about his, his work in that area um, from, from other uh, African-American alums. Um, what, so seeing, you're kind of anticipating where I wanted to go next. Say a little bit more about what it was like to be uh, on the Gustavus campus as an African-American student coming from New Orleans in, in the 70s, which, was, you know, I mean, contrary to what some people might think, there was a lot of stuff happening in the 1970s around race.
1: Yeah, well, actually, I started in 68 days
0: of rage. Or 68, I meant, yeah, because yeah. you graduated in 72, right? Sorry, that's right. That's what I meant. Yeah, you were right there.
1: Yeah, and, and, and a lot of us uh, did not feel that this was, that St. That Peter was the real world because, you know, many of us came from areas where, you know, larger cities and where racial issues were much more dynamic. Um, we knew coming to a place like Davis that in a strange way, we would be, you um, uh, specimens in effect, you know, we were to and kind of represent embody a larger world so that the students could gawk at, us, for example, you know, and um, you know, in in some instances that was something that we could exploit, you know, in other instances it was it was very alienating, um, but it was anything but making one feel at home. Um, right. This is where the history department really uh, worked for me because. Um, I got to know early on, uh, professors like, uh, uh, Fred Brown and I love Fred and, uh, uh Weefald were, 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 just amazing. And I spent a John,
0: lot of we- John Weefald and Fred Brown. Yeah. Both of them, I think went on to be college presidents. That's
1: correct. That's correct. And, um, Brown who was himself, I think he would, cons- he, he, he may have considered himself an outsider. Um, he, he wasn't Swedish. He wasn't Scandinavian. He was, he was from, uh, the middle world, so to speak, <laughs> <laughs> in Iowa and, and <laughs> cowboy, you know, and, uh, he, he could relate, I think, or at least we felt that he could relate to us in a way that most of the other professors couldn't. And, uh, so I found myself finding a home. He made his home, our home, in fact. Uh, uh, so, you know, he was one of the reasons why uh, we were able to, at least I was able to get over some of the alienation homesickness that I think is inevitable. For right.
0: Did you, um, did you come to Gustavus with an interest in history or, or how did you find your way to the history major?
1: Well, I, I was, uh, I guess I had the bug when I was a kid, uh, you know, growing up, uh, having a, 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 a connection with Massachusetts and growing up in Nashville uh, you know there's 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 a lot of history there to begin with and my father uh, always made it a point we had the, the good fortune of being able to travel uh, for 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 vacations and 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 dad always uh, you know enabled me in my interest in history we would go we would stop by places of historical note and uh, he I don't know. I don't know that he was terribly interested in it, but he was interested in it for me. You know, so he Would he would see to it that I got these souvenirs and that I would get these maps and, um, you know, things. And I, so I, I had I it whetted my appetite. And, of course, growing up in New Orleans, living in New Orleans, which is history personified. Right. It just sort of amplified that interest. Um, I tended to always think about history from a literary perspective. And um, I I love the the, the, the historical dynamic, the human interplay um, that goes on in history. And and actually, I saw it through when I graduated uh, and went into law, strangely enough. My very first publication was a uh, law review article on slave trial that occurred in Minneapolis in 1860. That was the very first piece that I actually wrote in history. And it brought me back to history. I had left, uh, graduating from college, uh, had a choice of going into history per se, or going into head psych, which was my father's area. I went the latter way, but uh, wound my way through that into law and then into history. <laughs> circuitous rude. And Root was, uh, you know, was by way of writing the article on uh, the slave trial.
0: Yeah, and I want to talk about that trial a little bit because most people don't know anything about that. I only learned about that in a um, actually in a seminar I did a couple of years ago with uh, historian Paul Finkelman, uh, which which led me to your uh, article, by the way. Um, Before we before we. Get to that. I do want to comment on you. You just touched on this on your uh, your your interest in in the in the human dynamic in history. I mean, that comes across uh, in your writing, the books especially, which are which are. I mean, it's 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 kind of unfair to say they're organized around people's stories, but in, in a way they are. Um, and I wonder before we get to the article if we could talk a little bit about um, the the the. the the books um, and then some of the figures in those books. It's impossible for you to summarize three, three books here and the fourth that's coming. But maybe tell us a little bit about some of the important uh, African-Americans you've looked at in your in your uh, uh, research and writing in those books.
1: Well, I never knew that there was a black chapter to Minnesota history, first of all, um, the, the, the the canon. Uh, if anything, would only refer to Dred Scott and nothing else and uh, if you look closely at the footnotes in Falwell, for example, there's only one reference to the slave trial, and it was it was it was touched on and and uh, left uh, almost as if the issue of race was an indiscretion on the part of the historian and the scholar so you know, I I, uh, I was, I, I, I would have otherwise followed suit and not paid attention to that history were it not for the fact that, and this gets me back to New Orleans. Um, I knew I was one of the few kids, if not the only kid in my group who knew who Hubert Humphrey was, you know, who knew who Fritz, uh, uh, Fritz Mondale was. And, and Don Fraser, And it's because they were, they were setting a national policy of civil rights, uh, at least within, within Congress. And um, my dad being involved, my mother being involved, their names were bandied about around a dinner table. So I'm asking myself, where do these guys come from? What is it about Minnesota that, 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 that brought the nation, brought these guys to the nation? And how is that possible in a state where there are no black people and no <laughs> apparent consciousness of black? What's that all about? Um, so, you know, I, I began to sort of look at the logic more closely and, and began to realize that in order to, uh, first of all, to, to, to know that, that that question existed, said something about the culture here. Right. The notion of niceness and about the culture of not wanting to be disagreeable. Uh, where does the notion of exceptionalism come from when there's no history to base it on? Um, so, you know, there, there are all sorts of questions that were unnice questions, so to speak, you know, <laughs> that, that drew me in, you know. Um, and, and one of the jobs I had was as a, was as a janitor and in a print shop. And one night I was working in the office of the of the of a foreman, uh, or we call it a forelady, four and she was uh, she's about maybe four or five inches tall. And she had one eyebrow and she had, you know, and she was intimidating. She scared the Jesus, <laughs> you know, but I, I, I was drawn to her because I'd never seen a Minnesota woman who had never been any place else but Minnesota with such dark skin. Was white. And she had a name like Wojak. That's not a black name. That's not a Creole name. So, I mean, what was this all about? And I finally got up the nerve to ask her, um, you know, where would your skin come from? I think I was much more diplomatic than that. <laughs> you know, I, I asked her, how did you, you know, who are you? Where did you come from? You know, what's your background? And I, I saw for the first time vulnerability. That stunned me because she still felt the wounds of being French. And that's what she told me. And she grew up, you know, along the river, you know, and uh, she she Bohemian flats and she, she talked about poverty, but she also talked about the racism against the French Canadians. And I had never seen that because coming from New Orleans, being French was what everybody was and embraced. But up here, that was not the case. And so I began to get a very interesting and nuanced sense of, of race. In Minnesota, which also drew me into the subject, race isn't just about African, Africa, although it is an element, but it, it is about being non-Northern European, you know, having the Indian uh, blood, you know, being Catholic, um, still being foreign, even though the French speakers were born and raised here. <laughs> right, that, you know uh, that the Yankees coming in from the east were the foreigners, but they were the ones who had the power to decide who's an outsider and who's an insider. So, so for me, Minnesota became an incredible uh, laboratory for understanding the nature of race and power and identity, even as as far back as the 19th century. And um, I began to wonder. That the answer to my question about what is it about Minnesota that would give us Fritz Mondale and Hubert Humphrey may have some connection with that, with with the Wojak story of the 19th century. I'm still examining that, but it, it, it really yielded a lot of very interesting issues that I didn't expect. And in a weird way, I felt like I had come home you know I'm hmm. on the end of the Mississippi River from New Orleans right and and yet these issues uh, are just as ripe here so um, anyway that's
0: all fascinating i mean that's that's extremely interesting uh, how you how you came to Black History, in Minnesota, and you're reminding me too. I think I've said this on some other podcasts. When I first came to Gustavus, you know, I grew up on the suburbs of Chicago. Yeah, uh, I had a beard, admittedly, and my hair was a little longer and thicker, uh, more of it. But uh, I will never forget a student, a Gustavus student, a, a white student, saying to me, "Quote, you are so dark." where do you come from, yeah. <laughs> end quote.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I thought,
0: yeah. okay, oh, as they might say here, okay then. I'm, I guess I'm in, I'm in Minnesota now. Um, well, in that sense I, of, go ahead, yeah, go ahead. The
1: thing about that is that when I first came to Gustavus, it was said, and I'm sure it was done tongue, said tongue-in-cheek, but it was said that before my class arrived in 68, um, the only people of color were the Norwegians.
0: Oh, yeah. I've heard that. (laughs) Right. Exactly. It's it's incredible that that uh, there's and you said the word exceptionalism a few minutes ago, by the way, which I uh, which was so happy to hear because I've long talked about felt about this, this powerful sense that Minnesotans have of, of their own exceptionalism or their states exceptionalism. I, I never encountered that before growing up in. I grew up in Illinois, as I've said. So, um, and we can get back to that when we talk a bit more about about history and George Floyd. But so you you found yourself researching Black history primarily in the 19th century into the early 20th century, um, and your your first book was called "Peculiar Imbalance: The Fall and Rise of Racial Equality." What do you what do you mean by that, peculiar imbalance?
1: Well, uh, and the fall and rise. I was I was interested in um, I became interested in the 1850s in St. Paul, where um, African Americans uh, kind of represented most of the socioeconomic classes. There were blacks who actually owned businesses and whatnot, and um, they were they, they lived in neighborhoods where the power elite lived as neighbors, as opposed to a servant, and um, they they. For all intents and purposes, were equal to anybody who uh, lived in in the city of a certain you know middle upper middle class status. Um, the only thing was that they were Af- African Americans, and by that and for that, they were denied the right to vote. They couldn't participate. Um, there's a story I like to refer to, where uh, uh, Brunson Benjamin Brunson, who was a lawyer uh, from from the east. Uh, has a a bill in his satchel as he's leaving to go to the legislature in 1849. Uh, The bill will determine who has a right to vote, and it expressly excludes uh, all people who are not white men of 20, 21 years or more. Um, Well, this excludes his next-door neighbor, who he grew up with. This excludes the man, uh, Jim Thompson, who his father had purchased and then freed. Um, This excludes the same person in Jim Thompson who owned property, a lot of property, and had um, um, helped a lot of of people who would become the movers and shakers of Minnesota get started. This would exclude him. Um, I was interested in, in knowing why is it that he couldn't get the right to vote, even though that legislation was drafted by a friend of his virtual family member of his. What's the nature of that? But what adds to the peculiar Nate, the peculiar imbalance here is the fact that the most denigrated white population, if you want to call them white, were the Irish Catholics. Sure, the Irish, yeah. And so they could vote, but they were, not, they were denied opportunities of economic development. They were, they were generally relegated to the lowest socioeconomic rungs of the latter. You look at the census of 1850, 50, uh, 1850 and the census of 1860, and you could see where they would actually, you know, they clearly identified where people lived, but also in, in, in most instances, the property that they possessed. And you could see how other white people, you know, other other immigrants, other Anglos, would come into the city and within a short period of time, apparently, be able to move up, acquire property, develop a skill, become a major part of society. But the Irish Catholics pretty much were relegated, generally, to the same um, ghettos, so to speak, of poverty that they were when they arrived uh, in the the early 1850s. Um, So you had one class of people who could vote, but, but weren't permitted because of the racism against the Irish Catholics to acquire economic power. Some did, clearly, there were exceptions. But that struck me as interesting. So you have blacks on one on one hand who could own businesses and 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 made, made something of themselves economically speaking and had relationships, but they couldn't vote, as opposed to the Irish Catholics who who were were denigrated by the Yankees, who seemed to embrace the African Americans as 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 a as a preferred minority, and then you have on the third hand the Native Americans, who um, as long as they stayed in the you know out out of the city, away from the seat of power, as long as they didn't coalesce and 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 uni- and, and unit unify their, their, their voice, so to speak. As long as they stayed separate from each other, the Dakota and the Ojibwe and the Métis oftentimes were, were, were sort of a people in between, um, they could be given the right to vote, but nothing else. And that right to vote could be denied them and was denied them because the same Native Americans who could vote in 1851 were denied that right to vote unless they could speak English and read and write English. This is 1857. And that that denial occurred because their patrons in the Democratic Party denied them of that. So we're looking at three different races in effect, black African-Americans, the Irish Catholics. And the Native Americans collectively, who were treated differently in terms of being a member of the society, of having political status in the society, in terms of having access to economic development in society. Now that would that would that would evolve into a different type of construct when you get into the eighteen sixties and eighteen seventies. How
0: did, how do you how do you explain that difference? I mean, what explains that? That's fascinating. Where I mean, African Americans, you know, fine, own a business, be successful, but you you can't vote. And what it took three three attempts is that right? I think you write for for black men to get the right to vote in Minnesota.
1: Yeah, that would happen after the Civil War.
0: Okay, in- what explains that? What explains why um, that that right is extended to uh, Irish American men, but not African American men?
1: Well, in the 18, 1840s and 1850s, America was still very Jacksonian in terms of politics. And, so, and, and and a lot of the power brokers of Minnesota were from the East, bringing with them the biases of the East. Most of the states, um, I think versus all the states, with the exception of, of, of some of the New England states, um, denied African Americans the right to vote. In some states, they were never even there, there was never even that opportunity to have the right to vote. But in most states, by the end of the Jacksonian era, um, if not all of them, black black men who once may have had the right to vote, especially if they had enough property, were denied it. That bias from the east and the Midwest, and from the South, but mainly from the east and the Midwest, that bias came with the settlers who moved to Minnesota. So it it wasn't, in the case of Brunson, a personal uh, rejection of Jim Thompson. It was just kind of how things happened. I mean, uh, Thompson himself, the black man, uh, did not seem to have any grievance against the fact that he did not have the right to vote, even though it became increasingly important. In 1849, the right to vote didn't matter as much because you knew people. And because it was frontier for all intents and purposes, you can create your own relationships and and go out into the woods and make your own uh, develop your own wealth. It isn't until the town becomes much more crowded, competition makes voting that much more urgent, and it's crowded increasingly by people who are bringing the bias, the racism from the east. Um, as far as the the Irish Catholics are concerned, well, you know, America hated the Irish Catholics. Um, but the Irish Catholic community uh, in Minnesota is, is growing, as it did in New York and Philadelphia, you know, with the migration, 1840, you know, the, the, the famine and, and, and those kinds of elements compelling people to move west. But in Minnesota, at least, um, the infrastructure that you see in New York that could keep, that could tamp down that Irish population did not exist as readily. You had the bias of the Yankees against the Irish Catholics, but you didn't have the numbers to actually repress them. The Irish Catholics in in Minnesota were able to acquire political numbers because they had the right to vote, but they could amass political power because their numbers were increasing. And the the Yankees did not have the physical and economic power to, to repress the growth of the Irish Catholics. So, they were able to become the same, the St. Paul that we know and love today,
0: you know. Right. When, you know, and that that point about the East, the the bias, I mean, you're reminding me, um, we should tell our listeners, some may know, but for example, I'm thinking of New York State, as you mentioned, in some places where African American men had been voting, as the right to vote is extended to all white men. Whether they own property or not, it's it's taken away from black men in New York. I mean, specifically, right? They're, the constitution is rewritten to disfranchise black men by by basically making the property requirements so high that that most black men can't can't meet it. Um, so that's that's interesting. The other thing I like about your work, this this reminds me, is that it the the it's part of this recent focus on on race uh, in the North and slavery as well, right? That these are not just southern phenomena we need to we need to pay attention to what was happening in in the north as well and so picking picking up the story from there i mean the 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 next book degrees of freedom so what happens in the late 19th century you start that book at the end of the civil war degrees of freedom implies some some progress
1: yeah yeah um it, it, it degrees of freedom really sort of looks at, you know, when you look at the the survey of American history and you get into that period, the post-war years, which, you know, we call Reconstruction for all intents and purposes, Reconstruction tends to be in reference to the South. It tends to be about occupation. It tends to be about the growth and spread of white supremacy in the South. And there's very little discussion, dealing with what's happening in the North, for example, which is, which is stunning to me because the North is going through a major change as well, in part because of the Civil War. Um, you have increased uh, industrialization. You have an increased immigration. You have increased agitation for women's suffrage. And you have the, 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 the possibility, at least in larger cities in the North, where you have a growing black population. And there are other factors as well going on. And that's not, and, and, and policy don't really think in terms of how do we adjust uh, America to this new America. In a sense, reconstruction comes to mean how do we make things as they were. And when you start having a, a, a mindset of trying to go back to normalcy, <laughs> you've got more tensions, and that's what we see happening in the North. Degrees of Freedom was 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 a, a, an example of that tension in a microcosm. African Americans received the right to vote; they were freed, and they were they were made citizens. Thirteenth, Fourteenth, and Fifteenth Amendments were ratified, um, but then in eighteen seventy. The sense of any more duty that the children of Lincoln, I'm talking about the children of Lincoln, I'm really looking at the degrees of freedom, any more responsibility that the, quote, good guys had to the freed men and women was was satisfied. We have done our part. And so as a result, the African-American, newly enfranchised, was left to try to make it without any more assistance from their colleagues, from their white friends. Um, so we have the right to vote. We're free. But we don't have the access to opportunity. That's where the degrees of freedom come from. And um, the, the, the foot, proverbial foot, is taken off the gas where, where the friends of black people felt that, um, you know, it's really now incumbent upon blacks to deal with racism because racism, which denies you the right to actually purchase a farm even though you may have the money to buy one, um, is a is is no different than say what what uh, what a white businessman would say if he has a, a downfall economically. Um, you know, for example, you know, it was considered to be your your good Republican if you're able to pull yourself up by your bootstraps.
0: Right, the free labor ideal, yeah, self made man.
1: Exactly. But the African American is dealing with this thing called racism, if you have the money to purchase a farm, you still have to be able to find a seller who will sell it to you. Or, you know, if you're looking to acquire a skill, chances are the only one who can impart those skills to you through an apprenticeship is a white person who's reserving that spot for a cousin of his. Or, you know, a black child is discriminated in the school you know there or you you can't purchase a house in the city because of the race but all of that was not considered the responsibility of the friends of african americans to deal with now here's the other side of that great the african americans now who had been free are understandably and rightfully grateful to their white patrons but they also understand that in this particular world to ask for help is, is proof positive that you're not really up to the task of being free. And so African Americans at that time tended not to agitate against their friends because they're basically showing themselves to be ungrateful. And that's the trick bag that happens. In degrees of freedom
0: that's where that's another way in which white paternalism or that, that relationship of client patron is limiting
1: exactly exactly so
0: the, go ahead sorry so,
1: so the african-american learns at least in Minnesota and I I, I I know it happens in other states in the north that because we are numerically minuscule or very small we don't have political power even though we have the right to vote we spend a lot of time trying to be on the right side of the power elite. And so we don't have the type of conversation, candid conversation, um, that one needs to have and one expects to have between friends. There isn't that kind of friend. There's a power dynamic that discourages Blacks from being candid. And so, you know, a a parallel world begins to exist between Blacks and whites. Uh, Blacks are free they have access to the power elite but they can't say yes but what are you going to do about this guy who is denying the access to, to to being served you know in the restaurant or, or whatever and so we it's quiet on that
0: it's so interesting because it's i mean they, they they didn't have this language but in a way um what 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 whites were saying is you know you're on your own. And the problem is yours sort of individually. It's not, there's nothing we would say structurally or systemic about, about the racism you're, experience. experiencing. If, if the whites were even acknowledging that, that racism, it's yours to fix. Um, and there's certainly, there's still, there's still that. I mean, I can think of white people I know well who've who've made, you know, why can't black people do what other immigrant groups have done and, you know, pull themselves up? So this gets us into George Floyd in a way, Uh, the murder of George Floyd on May 25th, 2020 here in Minneapolis. I know you've spoken about, written about this quite a bit. Um, I mean, isn't this history at least partly to explain why so many White Minnesotans were surprised at the anger. Uh, I mean, I'm sure you've heard, I've heard people say white Minnesotans say, well, this isn't, this isn't Minnesota. Um, And I sort of say, well, it is Minnesota, right? If you look at the history of black-white relations, I think those parallel universes you mentioned or worlds are, are helpful in understanding why white Minnesotans were flabbergasted by what, by what happened, both, both. The murder of George Floyd, but especially the aftermath. That's a lot, but yeah. dig in wherever you'd like.
1: Well, um, the, the, the the sense of unawareness—it's a word I'm making up—that um, a lot of white Minnesotans had. We didn't we didn't know, know that this was still a problem. We thought this had been settled a long time ago. That's that's something. That's an attitude that really kind of took generations to develop. By that I mean this. Um, it's It's a manifestation of the fact that black people and white people live in two different worlds they are, they're in parallel universes i mean they 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 live close enough to kind of see each other sort of but not really know each other or even really see each other um, and and an example of that is this where um I just got finished uh, doing uh doing a piece on Nellie Francis who um you know, was 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 one of the leaders of the of the of the women's suffrage movement in, in, in 1919, and um, then in 1920, you know, there was a lynching, and
0: she, in Duluth, in yeah, Duluth,
1: and she um, basically um, drafted the language for an anti-lynching law. She and her husband, and she lobbied the legislature to the point where all but one legislator supported the enactment of an anti lynching bill. Okay, so she is, she is a hero, and a lot of people recognize her as an extraordinary person um, within, and, and it also suggests that she had developed relationships with powerful white people, you know, who would support this effort to change the right to vote, and that that was necessary because the African-American population was just too small to demand that kind of recognition from the power that be. So she had to have alliances with white people. Okay, so the bill is passed. Three years later, she and her husband decide to move from a home that they've occupied for years in the black community, and they purchased a home in a white neighborhood in St. Paul. And before they took before they occupied the place, the neighbors were demonstrating against her. The Klan, supposedly, burning crosses on their land. Um, She was harassed. She and her husband were harassed simply because they lived in that neighborhood. And what's noteworthy to me about that, aside from that itself, is the fact that all of her friends, the white friends, the white friends of power, the mayor, the governor, the legislators, city council members, and leaders of the suffrage movement said nothing. They did nothing. Um, Now, let me just take a step back for a second on that point. Uh, The the, the question that a lot of white suffragists at the time were dealing with is, why should we take seriously black women? They're not here. Well, in Albert Lee, during one of the suffrage uh, uh, campaigns, the organization offered tickets to see Birth of a Nation if you come and join the suffrage movement, okay? And that was, you know, that, that kind of blindness is, is, is what African-American women at that time were, were looking at. And, and, and the history, the tensions between white suffragists and black suffragists suffragettes um, were suffragists was, was commonplace. We know that now. To, to, to exist, the tensions between black and white women. Um, but Nellie had a special challenge in trying to get black women to participate. Black women believed in suffrage. They felt that it was the right thing to have suffrage, and that was not the problem. The problem was the last time, and these were survivors from Reconstruction, okay, you don't have to be very old to have survived the Reconstruction years. The last time the nation extended voting rights to black people, what happened? The Klan right. rode fear back. Yeah, and now you're looking at Minnesota, and, and 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 white friends don't see that fear, even though they're using tickets to promote a a rally, "Birth of a Nation," and then you add to that the fact that in uh, in in the summer of 1920. Um, you have the lynching of these three black men. Now that wasn't because of suffrage, it wasn't because of suffrage, but to the African-American who has lived through a white terror um, throughout the first half of the 20th century and the second half of the 19th century, there seems to be a connection here that once blacks become a part of more enfranchisement, it seems to threaten uh, the powers that be. And the question is, where are our friends going to be? So this relationship between blacks and whites, even blacks and liberal whites, is, is, is always going to be awkward, you know, because they're trying to think about what happens the day afterwards. Now, you talked about George Floyd. Uh, a lot of my students were wondering, will my friends who were in the streets with me be there when the drama has passed? And know, hard work has to begin and make that an important question. That's the important question. And, you know, when when they're asked that question, the, the answer always is, you know, wait and see. And that's always a disappointing question uh, answer to white reporters, for example, who are asking. They're hoping for this to be the beginning of a new age. And they're, they, they want blacks to embrace it. But then African-Americans saying, well, you know, we, we don't want to speak too loudly about our. Um, skepticism, because after all, we're glad folks are out here now. But you know, in our heart of hearts, we've seen abandonment before, and will this be yet another example? So you know, the notion of exceptionalism is something that 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 the white community in the at the turn of the century sort of invented for themselves without any kind of assessment from their black colleagues.
0: Right. And it's comforting and it masks and obscures um, the deep, deep inequalities around race. I mean, the, the segregation that still exists in the, certainly in Minneapolis uh, to this day. And the other and the other thing about the white allies, I mean, that's, you know, there's rightly a lot of focus on that uh, today around the George Floyd protests. And yet that also can <laughs> that can reach a point where the white allies become the story and we lose sight of, of uh, you know, what's, uh, so i I'm, I, I don't know where you come down on this. I've, I've been asked sometimes by students who, is, is this the moment? Is this the turning point? And uh, I'm not so sure. Um, but I'm speaking here as a historian, obviously not as a, not as a black American, but, um, you know, hopefully, but, but I think we have to wait and see.
1: That's so we know in history, and that, and I mean, they're, they're, my answer, when, when, when I've been asked that question by reporters, let's just wait and see. Yeah, and and you know, and that's a problem with our society. We want things to be clear and resolved. We want closure now, right? And without really having to grapple with the challenge of, of the hard work.
0: That's right. Yes, that's right. I mean, uh, one 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 actually a white SNCC activist I was in a webinar with. I think uh oh, Lou Lou Sussman maybe. Anyway, he was uh one of the Freedom Riders, and but uh, he uh was making that point too. Same point. He works in Harlem now with young people, but, you know, it's not enough to just protest, even if you protest for many weeks. Yes, that's important, but, you know, there's more work to be done, um, a lot more work. Some, some, Some ways harder work as well. Let's talk about, you know, you, you mentioned, the, is it, is it uh, Eliza Winston, her story that you, you were alluding to earlier, the, the, the slave woman and her yeah, yeah. trial? Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that, because I find that so interesting. And uh, again, I think most most people listening don't don't know about it.
1: Um, Minnesota in 1860 was free soil, which is to say that, you know, slavery was prohibited in this region. Uh, Minnesota in one thousand, eight hundred and sixty was now two years into uh, being a state uh, controlled by the Republican Party, and it had adopted a state constitution which prohibited slavery as well. Um, but Minneapolis, in particular, and Saint Anthony, which is now considered it, it's the it's the it's the East Bank of uh, of Saint Anthony. If you're if you know Stone Arch, if you know Minneapolis, you know Stone Arch that neighborhood. Um, across the river on, on the uh, on the east bank. That was considered Saint Anthony. That was Saint Anthony, and uh, or the village of Saint Anthony, and um, that is a place where John North, um, a man from uh, from New York, came and tried to make into the New England of the West. He wanted to plant a colony of reformers in this region. He did not succeed, and so he moved down to the Cannon River uh, and formed another community that would be a community of reform, and he named it after himself. It was called Northfield. Okay, But the long and the short of it is, is that um, Minneapolis and, and St. Anthony were considered Politically, much more liberal compared to the more conservative St. Paul in 1860, and yet, and, and yet, we had the benefit of this waterfalls, which was the attraction of so many tourists during this particular time. Um, the m- more people who were, uh, more tourists tended to come up to Minnesota on the Mississippi River from the south. They were southerners. And after Dred Scott had been decided, which included the provision that said that a slaveholder can take his slave anywhere, including free soil and still retain ownership, Southerners basically had the license to bring their slaves with them to Minnesota, even though Minnesota was free soil. And and because St. Anthony Falls is located in St. Anthony, Minneapolis, this is where they would come. St. Anthony, Minneapolis, was the only site of the anti-slave society. It didn't exist any other place in the state. Um, And so you have this this strange uh, construct where slaveholders would bring their slaves to St. Anthony in Minneapolis, St. Anthony in particular, uh, to vacation um, in a a state where you have an anti-slave society situated just a couple, couple doors down. Um, the tension is ripe. Um, the slaveholder, uh, his name wonderfully, is Colonel Christmas, Richard Christmas. That's one who got <laughs> interested in the story. The names are incredible. Uh, he's away on business. His wife is at the, at the uh, is in the resort. His wife tells uh, uh, told uh, his the, the slave woman Eliza Winston to take her frock to the seamstress down the street and to have it mended. The seamstress is a black woman named Emily Gray. Interestingly enough, you know, most of the people who are residents of the region kind of do their own repairs. So her clientele tends to be the tourists who tend to be southerners, right? And she's also friends with the anti-slave people, okay? I'm going to try to go Try to be clear because it, it gets complicated. But the long and the short of it is this. Emily Gray helps Eliza Winston. Emily Gray, the free black woman who owns the seamster shop, hears Eliza Winston's call for help. And so Emily Gray tells her abolitionist friends, We've got to, we've got to get this woman. We've got to bring her to freedom. The slave woman is whisked away by her master and mistress. They learn about this plot to free her. They go to another lodge on the shores of Lake Calhoun. I think it was called Lake Calhoun at the time. Emily Gray leads a posse through the streets of Minneapolis, and this is not, you know, this is not me, you know, kind of imagining what's happened. This is expressed in the, in the newspaper of the day, the State Atlas. And she's at the head of a posse. I want you to imagine for a second what the men standing on the street corner, seeing a posse come through, led by a black woman, were thinking. <laughs> and many of the guys on the street corner in Minneapolis and St. Anthony benefited from working in the tourism trade because lumbering was, was at a low. Um, the, the, the grain industry and the flour industry hadn't really begun. There was a lot of unemployment. A lot of people who had supported the anti-slave provision to the Constitution now were willing to make that compromise because their income depended on it, on that kind of trade. So they see Emily Gray lead the posse to Lake Harriet, Lake uh, Calhoun. They get the slave woman they bring her back Judge Vandenberg is waiting to hear the case he's in the courtroom sidebar Charles Vandenberg the judge is the guy who dedicated city hall that we still that we see today that castle downtown he dedicated that in 1990 190 1900 He's in the courtroom waiting for the slave woman to be brought in the courtroom is packed with anti-abolition um, sentiment. People are hanging out the windows. They're pro-slave. They're supportive of Christ- Christmas. They're, they're, they're fearful of losing their jobs because the slaveholders, if they leave, means that there will be no tourism, no business for them. So the woman is brought up before the court. The attorney representing the slave, Colonel Christmas, and Colonel Christmas. His name is John Freeman. Okay, <laughs> He's from New York, but he's also Attorney General from the state of Mississippi, <laughs> and he's vacationing. So he brings in all sorts of constitutional law, which is what you're supposed to do, right? I mean, and the Constitution at that time had so many provisions that protected, and federal law protected the rights of slaveholders. That's right. Pro-slavery. Pro-slavery. And the Constitution also expressly states that the Constitution as a document and federal law as a body of law preempts state law. Okay. Well, he, he, he makes this argument about all the different cases, the, 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 you know, the various uh, legal federal laws that were passed. And then he sits down, I imagine, kind of wounded, a <laughs> uh, winded from his, his oration. And now the attorney representing the slave woman gets up. Her name is, I'm sorry, his name is F.R.E. Cornell. And he makes an argument that's quite simple and succinct. He says, yes, 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 we know about federal law, but damn it, this is Minnesota, and we don't have slavery here. And he sat down. His argument is less than five minutes. And the judge rules in his favor. Boom at which point there's an explosion in the courtroom. He freed, the judge frees the slave woman. Now, we I imagine that it's the decision itself that infuriated people, but it's also possibly because Vandenberg, the judge, and Cornell, the attorney for the slave woman, were also law partners, and they would later serve together on the state Supreme Court. Maybe that connection, but whatever the, and they're both from, from New York, generally the same section of New York where Freeman is from, who represented the slave woman. So the, the there's an eruption in the courtroom. William S. King, who is the uh, who he, he, he's the editor of the newspaper, uh, the State Atlas, um, and would later become a postmaster under Lincoln, uh, gets up and starts speaking. And the crowd is confused by what he's saying, but he, he distracts them long enough for the other abolitionists to whisk uh, Eliza Winston out of the courtroom. One of the members of the crowd, however, recognizes what's happening and you know there's chaos once again. One of the members of the crowd approaches the slave owner, Christmas, and says, look, give us the word and we'll just take her back for you. This is a Minnesotan saying this to a Mississippian. Give the word and we'll take her back for you. And Colonel Christmas says, no, 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 don't worry about that. Let her go. I've got plenty of her at home. <laughs> you know, I don't, I, I don't need that. And he furthermore approaches the slave woman and gives her money and says, there's more of this if you need it. You're always welcome to come home. The editors at the time who saw this commented on Christmas being the most gentlemanly of all of the people in that courtroom, and it stunned them. In any event, Eliza Winston is whisked out. For the next several months, the, 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 the residents of Minneapolis and St. Anthony are walking the streets. They, they had a riot. They destroyed Emily Gray's uh, seamster shop. Her husband was a barber. His shop is destroyed. The printing press of William S. King is destroyed. And a number of known homes of abolitionists were destroyed, including the home where um, it was believed that the slave woman was being held for for, for safety. Uh, It was the home of William Babbitt, yet another great Minnesota name, and New York born. So, you know, the long and short of it is this. There's chaos in the streets of Minneapolis and St. Anthony. Minneapolitans and St. Anthonyites <coughs> are walking the streets with loaded weapons, eyeing each other, waiting for the slightest provocation to blow each other away. This is just a couple years after Bleeding Kansas began. You even hear and read about congressmen worried that we're going to have another Bleeding Kansas. In Minnesota,
0: in Minnesota, huh?
1: Minnesota, there is the threat and the very real likelihood that we're about to have another uh, insurrection or even, you know, war on the issue of slavery to be played out on the free soil of Minnesota. And the only thing that averts Minnesota's attention from that was when war was declared in in Charleston Harbor. Uh, when, when the Confederates fired on Fort Sumter, one of a, a postscript to that, employers of some of the men who participated in the riot reported closing businesses because a lot of the guys who, who, who were hired to work for these businesses left to sign up to fight in the Union Army. They, they were anxious to do that. And um, I mean, it, it's a strange, I like to pause on with students because you say, well, what the hell's going on here? You know, right. We seem yo-yo back and forth. But this was this was Minnesota uh, in 1860, 1861.
0: And you could fight, you could fight for the union. Didn't mean you were fighting for, for black people or necessarily even to, to end slavery. Or if you were fighting in part to end slavery, it didn't mean you were fighting for Black-white equality or black civil rights—that yeah, that, that to me is such a fascinating story. In part because it's a reminder that, in addition to the slave rescue attempts, some of which were successful in the pre-Civil War period in the North, um, where abolitionists, white and black, sought to to rescue. Uh, uh, called Fugitive Slaves, you've got an element of that here where she's whisked away, but you, it's also a reminder of how important that, that, first of all, slavery was a legal system. It was a labor system and a racial system or caste system, but it was also a legal system. And that one of the tools opponents of slavery used was, was the law. And so you've got the judge the judge waiting and the judge ruling uh, that, that this woman is indeed a free Uh, a free person. Fantastic story, gripping story. That should be turned into a movie, by the way, or a little little TV something. Seriously, a little documentary. That'd be great. Before we conclude, and thank you for telling that, before we conclude, you were superintendent, you you chaired the school board in Minneapolis. You're also superintendent. I just want to get your take on the issue of um, school reopening in the time of COVID. So imagine you were, I mean, I, get, I mean, hear you saying, thank God this isn't the case, but imagine you are superintendent right now. Um, what are you thinking and what are you saying about that issue of school reopening
1: yeah, amid this pandemic? I'm not in that position anymore, <laughs> so thank you for that. <laughs> uh, I, I think that it's it's crazy to... Uh, expect that the that the school system or any college system uh, has the resources to make it safe for kids during this time uh, to come back in the classrooms. I mean, you know, our, our classrooms in the school district. Now, I'm speaking as one who's been out of that game for 10 years. Okay, but my sense is that not much has been has has occurred to change the physical structure of the schools. So that, you know, the schools are about the classrooms in particular and the hallways in particular are, are the same as they were 10 years ago, which did not anticipate a pandemic. Um, I think that it, it it just doesn't make sense to send kids back at this particular time. And it's not just about sending kids back, but it's also about the teachers and it's not just about the teachers welfare but about the bus drivers few of our kids actually live within walking distance of the schools they have to ride buses and and I'm thinking about the drivers the, the custodial staff um, you know I mean it, it's just so impractical to believe that um, you know any school system regardless of, of, of whether it's a red state or a blue state uh, regardless of whether it's in you know Florida or Minnesota, that, that we can suddenly accommodate. And it's a complicated thing. I mean, it's, it's easy for me to denigrate those who would um, want to resume business as usual. But, you know, I know it's much more complicated than that. I recognize that a lot of parents are worried about how do we go to work and you know, where do we place the kids? And, um, you, know, we, you know, how much time are we losing perhaps never to be reclaimed. That's right.
0: That's, I mean, what what happens to the kids who who aren't able to go back for another half year
1: or more? Exactly. So it's it's an incredibly complicated issue and, you know, I I don't really know the answer to it uh, in any kind of useful way. well here's to a, here's to here's
0: to you here's to you not being superintendent right now um, so this is more armchair uh than than anything um and here's to you being the scholar you are of of minnesota black history i just your your work is simply superb it's so it's so well researched and so readable and I urge everyone to get your books, including the the one forthcoming in January on, on Nellie Francis. She sounds fascinating. Um, we're proud to claim you as an alum of the history department and, of course, of the college. And best of luck with your own, <laughs> your own <laughs> teaching this fall. <laughs> we'll,
1: we'll all need it. I just share um, one thing with you. Go ahead. Um, during the time when um, Nick was being promoted, was being uh, uh approached by schools and universities and whatnot, and the academy. This is your son. Yeah, this is my son. Um, I didn't know that he was going to do this. He went to Gustavus. That was one of the things he went down for for the rush week, so to speak. And I asked him, well, why, why are you interested in Gustavus? I mean, because we never really talked. It was good for me, but you know, I didn't want to press anything on him. And he says, it looked like it treated you well. I mean, he said this. So... Uh he, he, he was very proud of being a and still is. And so, um, you know, there you go.
0: That's a great, um, boy, that, I'm thinking about how that could be used in marketing. <laughs> 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 to, to be able to say to your, your parent, you look like your alma mater treated you well. That's, that's pretty powerful. That's, it's great. And we're glad Nick came as well. And maybe I'll be interviewing him at some point too. So thank you so much. Um, I could, I could talk about this forever i find it absolutely fascinating um and including the uh, you know all all that falls all that all that comes out of the fact that the the black population is small right all 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 that that has meant over time um so here's to um here's to a vaccination here's to justice and uh we'll talk again soon i hope take good care
1: thank you very much Greg. i appreciate my pleasure my
0: pleasure thank you